Hi, and welcome back to Activists of Tech, the Responsible Tech Podcast. Because of the global nature of the internet, the space of tech and democracy can overlap with authoritarian narratives. In this episode, our guest tells us how China is using technology to erode democratic values both domestically and globally. We touched on several topics, including the Digital Silk Road Initiative, Chinese hardware investments in Africa, democratic resilience, and how soft power and the online narratives of the Chinese Communist Party are shaping global opinions about China. Melissa Newcomb works in the democratic governance field at the intersection of peace, climate, and democracy to counter authoritarianism and build democratic resilience. Previously, she worked at several U.S.-Asia policy think tanks and has expertise on both Taiwan and cross-strait relations. Melissa holds a master's degree from American University School of International Service in Comparative and Regional Studies with a focus on East Asia and conflict resolution. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Also, Melissa. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be so weird. So what's your story? So my story is that my mom came from Taiwan and she came to the U.S. for graduate school. And then she met my dad in America and they got married and, and I'm here now. Um, <laughs> and I grew up with my siblings in Texas. Um, so I was this, you know, mixed race person in a very predominantly white neighborhood uh, school system and also like a multilingual, multicultural family. And we weren't Christian and it's very Christian in Texas. So I think from a pretty young age, I think I've been obsessed with like identity and issues like that because from a really young age, people were asking me questions like, what are you? Not like, who are you? But like, what are you? And um, some of my earliest memories are actually from Taiwan. So my mom would take us as kids to Taiwan a lot. So I think that exposure to like international travel um, and this like being in this household that's clearly very different from other households, it made me really want to understand the world. And I think that's why I ultimately ended up doing international relations and um, issues related to that, because I, I was trying to figure out who am I? What is this? What's going on? Because people were asking me these really complicated questions from a really young age. So that, that's my story. I want to ask you, because I'm mixed too, and I want to ask you if, you yeah. know, you're in the U.S., you're yeah. the Taiwanese kid, and when you're in Taiwan, you're the American kid. Can you relate yeah. to this? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I, I mostly talked about my time in Texas because I didn't enjoy it. But in Taiwan, even though I enjoyed myself more, like, I, you know, it's a more fun place to be than Texas. Um, it was still very othering. Like people would ask me the same question, like, what are you? Are you mixed? And in Mandarin, that's like, which is like, do you have mixed blood? Which is like a really, especially when you're like 10 years old, you're like, yeah, that's oh. intense. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I'm mixed blood. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and I'm very, I'm, I'm rather tall for a woman. And I always have been like, quote unquote, bigger than like the, especially than the average Taiwanese person. They're very small. Petite. They were very so I small. always, yeah, I always stuck out whenever we went. Like I was this giant ten-year-old. I would be taller than like some grown men. Like, but yeah. So in Taiwan, I would be the American cousins. Mm -hmm. There would be the Americans, uh, and then in in America, I'm like that Asian. Maybe they'd be like, "Are you Asian? What are you?" Um, 
are you Hispanic? Like, cause it's Texas. So, uh, which is, oh my God. I mean, it's like, I, you know, if I was, I'd be fine, but it was just weird to always be asked that question. Like wherever yeah. you would. No, yeah. I can totally register. I literally want to have like an entire episode on this because like I, I can relate to it so Total strangers, bus drivers. What are you? Yeah. Like mind your business. I'm 12 years old, you know? Yeah. It's also like they're big and like they would if they saw me with my mom, but not my dad, they'd be like, what's your dad? And it's like, well, who's your dad? Like, not everyone knows who their dad is. I know. But I mean, yeah, it's very invasive. The yeah. Question just like total strangers will ask. But I feel it's also like this obsession of wanting to put people in a box and label them. Because from my experience, like Tunisian Armenian, when people ask me, what are you? I'm like, well, I'm half Tunisian and half Franco-Armenian. And they're like, oh, so you're Tunisian. They picked one. Oh, yeah. And I was like, no, it's it's more nuanced than that. Like, why do you have to put me in a box? Yeah, and it gets more complicated. Like, when I was growing up, my mom would say we're Chinese because mm-hmm. in the and I might age myself here you know like in the 90s and the 2000s that was a less loaded thing to say and Taiwan China I think it gets complicated like ethnic identity um but my mom was that generation that called them they're from Taiwan they call they called themselves Chinese because they're ethnically Chinese mm-hmm. As we grew older and things got like more tension with U.S. and China and also between like Taiwan and China and like a stronger sense of like Taiwanese identity, we, I don't know when the shift happened, but at at some point we stopped saying we're Chinese, but we're Taiwanese. All of us, like, I don't know. It wasn't like we talked about it. It It's just like one day we stopped saying we were Chinese. So that's also interesting and strange. I think it started, I think it was when things got more tense between the two sides, like maybe in the early 2010s or something like that. Maybe before that, probably even. So at the beginning of your career, you decided to focus on Taiwan. Was there a pivotal moment that led you there? Oh, yeah. So um, when I went to graduate school, I actually was intending to focus on China because that's what everybody was doing. It's also like it's bigger. There's like more economic opportunity. Things were more open between the U.S. and China. So, you know, I think tech companies were that were U.S. based were still in China. Like every, it was a whole different world. So everyone who did Asia was basically doing China. And that was my intention too. I got to DC. I had been living in Taiwan for a year before that. I had been studying Mandarin there. So I came to DC and my first few classes at American University, I quickly realized like most people don't know that much, if anything about Taiwan. It might be different now. I really am curious. I'm not sure. But at that time there was, it was weird that I'd be among people who knew so much about mainland China and they would literally know nothing about Taiwan. Or they would repeat what they heard from like from like Chinese PRC sources. So um, that kind of compelled me to focus more on Taiwan in my graduate studies. I became known in my classes among my professors as the the one that's obsessed with Taiwan, and that kind of shaped my my first job. It shaped my internship. I was an intern at the State Department for the Office of Taiwan Coordination, which was fascinating. And so from there, I just kind of, it it led me down that path. But at the moment, I'm more globally focused. But for most of my career, I was was mostly focused just on Taiwan. And so it evolved from international relations to tech and democracy. Uh, What are you currently focusing on? My work currently focuses on the emerging threats to democracy um, and sort of looking at 
it as a whole of society issue. Um, so that could include, you know, uh, socio-political influence from authoritarian actors, environmental governance issues, or peace and security. I personally focus on the authoritarian issues more. When did you get introduced to the concept of civic tech? So I was introduced to civic tech through my work on Taiwan. When the Sunflower Movement first happened, I knew about it as like a movement and I knew the details of, of what occurred, but I didn't understand the mechanics of it. But when I was working at a think tank that um, where I managed and I created a program actually to bring civil society activists from Taiwan or experts even from Taiwan to Washington, D.C. Um, and that series was uh, inspired because in D.C., Again, at that time, I think things might be slightly better now, but at the time, the focus on U.S.-Taiwan relations was always military. It was always about how can Taiwan be a bulwark against an invasion to Japan from China? Or how can Taiwan, what happens if Taiwan is invaded? What happens to our access to semiconductors and, and the undersea cables and all our naval bases out in Asia? Like It was always a question of security. But I actually felt like the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, even though it might have been born out of the uh, tensions between U.S. and China, the real foundation was the democratic values. And I didn't think people knew or talked about that enough in Washington. So that was the genesis of the, that program. In the course of, of researching for that program, I uh, was researching the Sunflower Movement more in depth. And I realized and learned how much technology had shaped that movement and their ability to broadcast their ability to coordinate, to communicate, to use tech for, you know, civic good. And, and that just became, I just became kind of obsessed. I had never heard of that before. I had never known that was a thing. Um, I'm not sure how other people are introduced to the concept, but that was definitely uh, how I learned about it. Uh, Taiwan is very high tech, right? How is it using, how is Taiwan using digital tools while also protecting privacy? So my knowledge of this is more based on the early months of the pandemic uh, when I was paying really close attention to what was going on. Um, so after COVID-19 hit, uh, you could see a real contrast between how Taiwan and China were using essentially the same technologies, but in extremely different ways. So in Taiwan, they rolled out QR codes for uh, contact tracing and you could scan them, but there was a lot of assurances that it wouldn't collect your personal data, but it would let you know if you had been involved or like near a active case of COVID. Um, and then another thing was run by actually just civil society, which were maps where people would update maps on where you could get masks or other supplies in real time because there was like these there were all these sudden shortages right of supplies in every case you could see people were taking a lot of care to make sure it was either like anonymous or there was like just a lot of disclaimers about not showing your identity i will say that one thing they did that was maybe less democratic was that they were using um, cell phones to trace people if you were in quarantine but it was specifically while you were in quarantine so that's similar, but they had like a short, relatively short quarantine compared to um, in China where the quarantine might be, you know, continually extended. And in China, they had QR codes that you had to scan um, and there was an app. And if you were exposed or tested negative, your color code would go from green to red. 
Um, and there was no way to, you know, dispute. There were many cases of like inaccurate or that we heard, you know, through journalism that there were many cases of inaccurate results and people had no way to to counter that. And then they would be forced to quarantine for an indeterminate amount of time, um, which of course is like quite frightening if you think about it. And I'm sure people went through terrifying situations. I, I heard families were separated at certain points. And I think that for the for China, for the PRC, COVID-19 was in, in one way a great opportunity for them to justify collecting all this biometric data and all people and survey people in the under the guise of, you know, public health. That's a fascinating example because we can really hear how technology can be used for the better or for the worse. How would you say China is currently using tech to erode democracy and how does that fit in their system of influence? Um, is there a domestic or global approach to this? Yeah, so I think domestically, it's quite different from their global approach because they have that kind of closed system, if you will. They've kicked out most foreign, if not all foreign, you know, digital media companies. There's been a strong crackdown on on tech regulation from the government. So, you know, they're able to very easily uh, use very sophisticated censorship tactics. Um, you know, platforms that are allowed to operate in China are very sensitive to the government's parameters and will moderate before, you know, they'll moderate the content so that the government doesn't have to. And so people's, you know, posts might not get posted or they'll disappear, be erased, or their accounts will be shut down. And then, of course, you know, there's very sophisticated surveillance systems in the big cities. Um, there's state-owned news channels. Um, and so it's it's a pretty tight and closed system domestically. Um, globally, you'll see the same approaches, but you won't see them happening all at once, or you won't see them as like concentrated because they simply don't have the same level of control. So of course, the information manipulation part, um, if people who are listening want more details, there was a recent report from the Global Engagement Center. Um, but the main aspects to that internationally, you know, you have your your digital information manipulation campaigns that could, that could be from anything from, you know, troll farms to uh, proxy social media you know, influencer types who are paid to say certain things or, you know, more uh, coordinated and like, you know, high, high volume attacks, um, things like that. Then they also have uh, the PRC and many other states or countries, depending on how their media environment is run, they have these media um, content agreements. Uh, it's not necessarily misinformation that's getting put out there, but at least it's the like China's narrative that gets put out there through their content agreements and um, it's getting, you know, blasted out to the public. So they're hearing it and they're exposed to it and they may not be hearing another perspective if, for instance, their country or their um, media outlets don't have equivalent agreements to other other um, partners. Um, then there's also just ownership of media outlets abroad. So in many cases, the PRC has also bought media outlets abroad. And, and in Taiwan, there were many cases of this, and it caused a lot of controversy. In fact, when people realized that like ownership was based in, in mainland China. Something that's different globally is that the PRC will target the diaspora, you know, over hundreds of years and even just in the last, you know, a uh, few decades, there have been many, many waves of immigration from China to other countries. So it really is a global diaspora. But in many cases, the communities still speak Mandarin or at least consume a lot of Mandarin language, news or media. 
even if it's not necessarily their first language. And um, the PRC pays a lot of attention to these communities and is wants to make sure that they're consuming the media that they that the PRC, the CCP wants them to. Um, and people who are abroad who may uh, express negative opinions, they will find themselves the targets of of the CCP. So even if you criticize China from the country that you live in now, you may still face uh, transnational repression, especially if you touch on those hot button issues like Taiwan, Tibet, Xinjiang, or Hong Kong. Um, and that's unique to their sort of global um, activities. Um, and it's something that people weren't paying as much attention to if you were not a Mandarin speaker uh, until the last few years, I think, um, governments in, like Canada, the US and Europe have realized like that their citizens are also uh, under pressure from, from China within their own borders. Last but not least, you have the 50 cent army or trolls basically. In most cases, they're actually paid government bureaucrats, but sometimes they are just netizens online who are either unpaid or, or uh, sponsored in some way to basically attack anyone who does voice dissent against the CCP. Um, anyone who's been on Twitter or X uh, and has oh said something God. about the China. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I faced it. I mean, I wasn't even that big on Twitter, but um, I still got the trolls even even with my small account. So, I bet you did. Yeah. And it's quite alarming. So it's a good way to suppress free speech. Can you tell us about the China's Digital Silk Road? Yeah, so the Digital Silk Road, like the Belt and Road Initiative, is a sort of framework rather than a concrete set of programs, if you will. Uh, it was announced in 2015, and it, it builds on the Belt and Road Initiative. And if people listening don't know what that is, that's an initiative that was announced, I think, in 2013, where uh, China would kind of like create this um recreate its its glory days, if you will, of the Silk Road of creating, you know, connection and and using the wealth that it has uh, and its prosperity that it has gained to sort of spread that to its its partners. So they invested heavily in a huge range of projects, some of them much better in quality than others, roads, bridges, energy uh, sites, dams, uh, you anything, you name it, like uh, ports, deep water ports, um, oil refinery, extractive resources, all, there were all kinds of programs uh, under the Belt and Road and that continue. Though uh, some people will remind, some scholars have pointed out that some of these projects were ongoing before these announcements like Belt and Road and Digital Silk Road, but later they were rebranded. So that's something to keep in mind when you look at these. But Digital Silk Road specifically um, is looking at like ICT infrastructure. So your cell phone towers, your undersea cables, your underground fiber optic cables. So basically in the countries where they've built these large quote unquote hard infrastructure, now they're giving them the digital infrastructure they need. Um, they're filling that, that uh, development gap. Um, included in Digital Silk Road is um, are things like exporting surveillance technology, but they call it like helping to build smart cities, but it's, it's a lot of surveillance technology. Um, and though I haven't looked closely at the agreements between uh, PRC and these the recipient countries, it's hard to imagine that they don't have some kind of way to capture the data that they are helping these, you know, 
that that they're facilitating the flow of. I can't imagine that they're just walking away from it, but I have no proof. Uh, maybe somebody else has has been able to prove it. Um, and then there's also this whole aspect of scientific exchange and like research and development. Um, so part of Digital Silk Road also includes, you know, scientific uh, joint research centers um, and and fellowships for people to study uh, in the PRC or complete their their research um, projects in the PRC. So that's the huge sort of um, explainer of it, though it's it can get really complicated. So do these investments in hardware shape the perception foreigners have of China? And is it, you know, more positive or negative? So I think that China's investments abroad, development investments abroad do shape opinion uh, in the host, in the recipient countries. One thing I noticed when I switched my focus from being exclusively on Taiwan to working at the global level was how many people I talked to had either a neutral stance towards uh, China or a positive one. And it makes sense when I started to hear more from them uh, because, you know, if someone comes and build a road or builds a cell phone tower that no one else was building or was going to build it at a way higher cost to your public, uh, why wouldn't you have a positive or at least a neutral view, even if you're aware of how maybe the government is not necessarily democratic or or fair, if you're aware of that. Some of them may not even be aware of the political system within China because they hear the messaging of China's prosperity, China's a leader, and also China really posits itself in um, in countries in Latin America and Africa as a sort of equal, and they do see that. Um, they don't. The other aspect to China's investments abroad is that they are quote unquote no strings which means they come without the lecturing on human rights and other issues. And they generally meet countries uh, where they are in terms of their standards. So if a country has its own high regulations regarding like environmental governance, the Chinese companies will tend to meet them where the state tells them to meet them. But if they have low or little protection, then often that means those standards aren't upheld. So if a country doesn't have Let's say like the IMF comes in and says, well, we'll build this bridge for you, but we need to have, you know, certain standards for environmental review. And let's say that country's government doesn't have that capacity, but then China may come and say, we will build that, period, you know, and that makes it possible for this recipient country to have something that um, they wouldn't otherwise have. So I think that um, it's been very smart of the PRC to do this kind of development abroad because uh, they've definitely in created that goodwill, even if there were negative impacts from those projects. A lot of times, if it neg negatively impacted a local community, still at the national level, they have that state-to-state -state relationship that is you know, positive because the government wanted that project in the first place. Beyond infrastructures, does China also export um, its tech practices? So it it's it may not necessarily be the same country, but if uh, but in many instances, for like instance, the digital Silk Road, if they are building, you know, the the cell phone towers, they're also going to uh, provide a lot of the the technology. And so, uh, but there are many countries that have agreements with China to uh, say, import their um, surveillance technology. Another aspect of 
how China reinforces its view abroad in a positive way is that not only are they creating all these, you know, investment opportunities for or investing so much in all these host countries, but they also provide um, exchanges like people to people exchanges, a big part of, of China's influence operations. So they'll bring journalists or scientists and even like there's like youth groups or different if they have like a party 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 relationship. So a ruling party in another country, if they have a strong relationship. They'll bring them over. You actually see that a lot with in the past with the KMT in Taiwan to the PRC. Um, now the KMT folks get more negative attention for it. But in the past, it was very normal to have these kinds of delegations going to to China. And, and that continues on today. And when they do that, they take them to the the most impressive, the best parts of China. They're wined and dined, and it is a great experience. And they're also given opportunities and, and real skills, like technical skills, um, but of course, through like the lens of the PRC. So if you're a journalist, they're going to tell you uh, their side of the story. They're going to present things as they want it to be presented. And they're, they also sort of ironically, they might be teaching political parties on the other hand, or governments on the other hand, how to curb dissent or silence uh, sort of opposition voices. So they're playing all sides of the society in that way. Um, and it it does leave people with a powerful and like sort of positive impression after those trips. I think that China has accurately assessed that people in, in the immediate really care about their needs, like their development needs. And yeah. yeah, and also that unfortunately, European countries and the US haven't necessarily fulfilled their promises in a lot of ways. Would you say that what China is doing currently on the African continent is another form of colonialism through technology and impl implementing um, tech infrastructures? I don't know if I would necessarily compare them like apples to apples, but I would say that China is very adamant in saying how they're anti-colonial and Russia does that too. And they build on the goodwill that, that they engendered like in the 50s and 60s during a lot of independence movements, you know, because they were some, China and Russia were some of the first big countries to recognize a lot of the new um, independent countries and be there for them either as partners in some way. So China really um, emphasizes that they are anti-colonial, but at the same time, if you look at their practices, like in the extractive resources industries, it's hard to, to see that they are behaving much differently. Um, so I don't know if it's exactly, I don't, I don't think we could say it's exactly the same, but I would say the practices don't seem to be helping local communities in the same way that a lot of like exploitative practices during colonialism didn't help local communities. You've talked about um, the positive perception of China abroad. In the AI governance space, I feel like a lot of people praise China for passing so many tech laws and internet governance related laws. What are your thoughts on that? And what have you heard in the space? Um, yeah, so when I, when the times where I've been in conversations with AI experts and especially AI experts, AI policy experts who are thinking about it through a democratic lens, I was surprised to hear that they admired that China had created regulations, um, especially so quickly. Um, and they 
uh, even presented on it, and there was a whole discussion about these regulations, but I didn't hear anyone raise, well, how are these regulations? How did they come about? And I've done a little bit, a little bit more superficial research on how those regulations came about. And yes, they say multi-stakeholder, there's academia and maybe you know private sector and government, but I never see anywhere where they talk about civil society in China's AI regulation development. And I think that's the core of making a, a democratic AI policy. If you don't have civil society, what does it mean to say you are upholding transparency? Like transparency to who? And it's actually really the party and the state government. So I, I can see why people in the US and other countries admire that China has come out and kind of staked a claim and they are saying a lot of the right things in their public documents. But I think it's a trap to be enamored with that because it's the same way people were enamored when China kind of broke out on the economic scene and like lifted how many millions of people out of poverty, as they like to say, but at the same time, you know, really degraded human rights and political rights. So I think um, it's problematic to ignore how the, their government system works when you're thinking about their AI policies. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. Honestly, I don't think anyone in this space is saying like that. Are they really not? Of course they want to regulate their AI. They want to regulate everything. Yeah, <laughs> there is like no space for people to, I don't know, explore or go crazy or revolt or like change something, you know? Well, and I mean, I didn't talk about this yet. I don't know if, how, if it would fit, but like we already know China deploys their AI against ethnic minorities, such as the Uyghur population. And so, yes, they're creating all these regulations, but, and they're saying transparency to the global community. But then, if you look domestically at how they are oppressing, you know, human rights and targeting specific populations, this goes against ethics of AI or ethics in general. Um, and so, if you, I don't really understand how you can ignore that when you're looking at their AI policies. What do you think are the solutions to counter authoritarian influence, um, such as the Chinese one, and build democratic resilience online? Yeah, I think for this question, it's the answer that nobody really wants to hear, which is that you have to do the hard work offline. Unfortunately, I don't think there's an app or a website or anything that will just make democratic online spaces because the root of, of what's not working about online spaces is in offline spaces. So tech itself, it needs to be more democratic. It needs to have inclusive regulation that requires, you know, transparent governments that engage society, civil society. And, and there's another aspect of like, even if you had a perfect e-state, it wouldn't necessarily be democratic, um, which is, you might think uh, that those things are, um, like that one thing will lead to the other, but that's not necessarily true. Um, that being said, I do think there's like some key tech policies or frameworks that we do need. We do need stronger data protection in general. Um, not just, it can't just be Europe always making those rules. Um, we need to hold private platforms accountable to the same standard, no matter where they're based. So for instance, Private platforms, platforms that are not owned by by Chinese uh, companies, are also not democratic. They're closed, opaque systems, and they'd have biases. We know that. Um, but when TikTok came into the U.S. market, the U.S. tried to regulate TikTok in a way it had never tried to regulate Facebook. Um, and we we could say we know Facebook has done a lot more harm than 
than any other social media platform, probably. So we can't just apply regulations to some and not others because of geopolitics. And then in the space of AI governance, I think we need to hold firm against this, what I was talking about, this sort of fallacy that passing regulations equals uh, democratic governance. Um, and we need to look to countries that are being more inclusive in their tech and AI policies. And I think New Zealand is a great example. They take a lot of care to, at least on paper, I mean, it's hard to say in practice, right? But at least in their policy documents, they talk about inclusion a lot of the indigenous Maori people. And they're very sensitive to data protection because of those marginalized people. And I think that's exactly the opposite that we're seeing with the PRC. And just the last sort of plug I want to make, and maybe it goes at the top of this, which is just that democratic governments are essential to having a democratic online space. So we need to do that kind of not fun work of civil society engagement, working with lawmakers, creating those frameworks where lawmakers are talking to civil society. And um, some countries do have those frameworks already. Um, and so, but they're slow, they take time and they take dedication. And it's like pushing both sides to go to the table it is really critical. Melissa, thank you so much. Melissa, thank you as well. Are we going to talk about how we have the same name? Oh my God, we could. We could talk about it. We have the same name. We're both mixed. We're both Scorpio. Oh, should we talk about how we met? We met on fucking Twitter of all the places. I know. Do you know yeah. that song? What's the, is it a Rihanna song like we met in a hopeless place or something like that? <laughs> Twitter was a hopeless place. It's even more a hopeless place today. Honestly. No, it's X now. So it's even. Oh, ew.